Good morning, good morning, and welcome to the 3CR Gardening Show. My name is A.B. Bishop, and I'm standing in for Pam Vardy, who is off exploring the Amazon for a couple of weeks. Or actually, no, she might be visiting grandkids, one or the other. Yeah, something um, like yeah. that, yeah. <laughs> Now, when I found out who was joining me in the studio today, I was very excited because it's not every day I get to have a private consultation with two true plant masters. <laughs> but even though it is a private consultation, I'm more than happy to share you both with everybody else. So I would like to welcome Stephen Ryan from Dixonia Rare Plants and Jeremy. Francis from Cloud Hill. Good morning, guys. Good morning. Good morning, Abby. And isn't it a wonderful, wonderful Sunday? It's going to be beautiful. It's Just incredible. the day to go out and look at gardens and go to nurseries, Abs- I think. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and it feels like we sort of skipped summer in summer and um, and we've moved into summer in autumn. Mm, it's very odd. And the good thing about it being summer in autumn, in a sense, is that at least the days are shorter, so you don't have to, you know sit out there panting for extra hours during the day. So even if it's warm, you know the days aren't as long. And, and of course, your plants don't stress quite so much at this time of the year because they're already hardened up a bit. So it's not a bad time to have the warm weather, I think. Yeah, yeah it happened a couple, uh, happened two or three years ago too. Uh, we had a autumn with temperatures about 10, 12 degrees above average for several weeks. And, uh, well, yeah, it's a, it is nice if we could just make sure it happens this way and not the other way around. Yeah, Indian summer, I think it's yeah. called, isn't it? Yes, yeah. and it's uh, yes, and it is a nice time of the year to be out and about in the garden because it isn't as stressful, even if it's warm. Um, and I don't know, there's something about the autumn that just there's this sort there's of something sense. about the autumn. Yeah. I have to say, it's my favourite season. Yeah. I love yeah, it. It's gentle. Yeah, it is. It's much more gentle. Spring can be very hectic and and chaotic and windy and rainy and doing all sorts of stuff, but uh, a good. Victorian autumn is hard to beat, I think. Oh, absolutely. And it's funny, you know, when I thought I'll do a bit of research for coming in here because I'm sure we've had a really, really dry February and, and, Mm. you know, really um, cool February. But in actual fact, it was only one degree cooler than average overall and similar um, moisture levels, similar rain levels. Yeah, well, see, there you go. You you have this perception that doesn't always follow through. And I have to say, I, you know, started off the year with that cool weather thinking, oh, well, not a tomato to be had this year. Year and you know probably no sweet corn and certainly no uh, you know none of those sort of really hot climate vegetables but they actually did kick in um, might have been a week or two later than normal but uh, I've been picking a lot of tomatoes and they've been really good and uh, we got a good crop of sweet corn this year um, so yeah so the the season's been actually quite kind to the plants, even the things that seem to normally need warmth. Yeah, did, did either of you grow beans? I, I did beans, beans, yeah. Yeah, and how'd they go? Because they're yeah. a classic warm... Yeah, look, I weather. had bush beans in the garden. It seemed to be a comparatively short season with them, but I got lots of beans. Mm-hmm. You know, you have that sort of glut thing happen, yeah, yeah. sort of, and you think, oh, not more bloody beans. <laughs> um, and did you blanch them and freeze them? No, you no, I just tend to eat fresh. If they're, if they're Part of the crop's left over and I don't get round to eating it. It goes in the compost. Yeah, um, the only things I preserve is if I've got a glut of fruit, which doesn't always happen because the birds tend to get most of it. Um, and I'll bottle or stew fruit and freeze it and use it for cereal and stuff. But I don't bother with the f- vegetables and things. I just like to eat in season. Yeah. So once they're, you know, once they're over, they're over, and I don't necessarily need them in the freezer taking up space. And... Uh, they still return to the ground in other ways. That, that is so true. I never feel bad about either giving the chickens, giving the worms, well, not that I've got worms at the moment, but when I do have worms, giving yeah. worms or giving the compost because it comes back to you eventually, doesn't it? It does, yeah. yeah. So it's not wasted. That's it's, right. you know, I just didn't eat it all. Yeah. <laughs> well, we had an absolute 
glut of tomatoes. Maybe not a glut so much, but a glut for two people. Yeah. And um, so this year I've dehydrated them all and I thought I'm going to dehydrate them to the point where they're crunchy and then blend them up and make tomato powder. Ah. And save that. So, but it, it is taking a while to. So far, they've been going for about twenty hours dehydrating, oh, and they're going through various <laughs> stages of being soggy, then being a bit stretchy, and now they're finally getting to crispy stage. <laughs> oh goodness me! Yes, you do wonder about it all the time. Uh, I have to say, I went through that era of self sufficiency where we were making jams and jellies, and yep. you know, practically everything we could think of that we could make out of our produce. Um, and it dawned on me sometime later when I started chucking stuff out of the cupboard because we weren't using. Using it that we actually don't eat a lot of sweet stuff, and so I ended up with third degree burns in a sticky kitchen for basically <laughs> for nothing. nothing. You know, so I've stopped making jellies and and pastes and all that sort of stuff because yep. we don't use enough of it to make it worthwhile. I felt really rich when I had a cupboard full of um, medlar paste I'd made. Oh yes, but we. <laughs> Forgot it was there, and it eventually, it eventually went all sugary, and 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 wasn't really any good anymore. It's funny so, all these but, old fashioned things that are tra- yeah. we traditionally do it, but we don't actually use them these yeah. days, do we? No, yeah. no, no. I think you've got you've got to be rational yeah. about these things. Uh, I wonder about Christmas puddings now too, because I think we've got two hanging up that have been there for about three years now that we actually haven't used. I mean, they'll still be fine, but you know, what was the point in making them if yeah. we're not going to use them? And yeah. you know, you think, oh well. Um, so yeah, I try and be rational about mm. produce. And did uh, you add, did you actually taste the medlar um, paste? Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. It has a different flavour than quince paste. Uh, I think a more complex one, uh, and so therefore a bit more interesting. But I just don't eat a lot of that sweet stuff. Yeah. So. What do you usually eat it on toast or with no? You'd use it or? with cheeses and things oh, like that. Okay, so you'd use yeah. it on a cheese platter. Yeah, um, and um, it makes a paste that's not dissimilar in colour to a quince paste, yeah. so it cooks up to that sort of caramelly, chocolatey brown colour. Oh, yes, that looks uh, good. And, um, yeah, it has a, the same sort of consistency if you do it well. Um, and The tree itself is extremely lovely, I should point oh, out. Oh, yeah, look, I, I would plant a medlar tree with no intention of using the fruit whatsoever mm. uh, because the blossom is lovely, the tree makes a nice shape, uh, the autumn colour is good, the fruit looks nice hanging on the tree. In fact, I've had quite a few people asking what my medlar tree is, in fact, uh, over well, yesterday, because the garden was open. Um, and <clears throat> so it's one of those trees that always creates comment. And they're hardy. They're easygoing trees. Mm. And, How uh, big do they get? Oh, well, it depends on which medley you plant. But the Dutch medley, which I, is my favourite, uh, my tree in the garden after about 15 to 20 years would be, oh, I suppose it would be four metres tall by pretty well as wide, maybe oh, even wider. So not, not really a tree at all. Shrub. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's a tree shrub with delusions of yeah. yeah. There was a lovely one in the Royal Bot Gardens many years ago, but last time I was walking through, there seemed to be a gap yeah. where the medley used to be. But it was one of the loveliest trees in the garden. That might have been yeah. during that era when a lot of rosacea stuff was taken mm. out of the Bot Gardens because they thought they had fire blight. Oh yes, remember that they uh, found yeah. something yeah. that they thought I'm was I'm fire sure blight in right. some cotoniasters in streets yeah. around the botanic gardens, and, everything got whipped out. and they yeah. whipped out a lot of things in the rosacea family because they didn't want it to spread. Yeah. So that could be why the medlar disappeared, maybe. But it is one of those old-fashioned fruit trees that I love. I think it's a beautiful tree. Uh, the fruit itself is yeah, somewhat of an acquired taste, I guess. But um, uh, if you eat it when it's really soggy and squishy, it's pleasant enough. Mm. It just doesn't look particularly attractive. You're not selling it very well. No, <laughs> probably not. Well, if I tell you that for me, uh, a, a ripe medlar, uh, one at 
edible stage tastes a bit like a cross between bruised apple and port. Um, well, does port, that help? port might sell it for me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> not necessarily bruised apple. Yeah, it has got a distinctly appleish flavour, but it's like that sort of. Uh, I think it's more about the texture more than the flavour, actually, why I think bruised apple. But yeah, yeah. Um, uh, it's it's not unpleasant. Yeah. It just looks weird. Yeah. Um, so grow it for the tree yeah. and then you've got the yeah. extra look, advantage of the fruit. There's people out there that just adore medal of fruit. So if you don't like it, I'm sure you'll find people that will be happy to come and collect the fruit from you. Yeah. Um, and uh, the issue is you've got to, you've got to what they call blet it. You've got to let it go almost to the point of rotting. Oh, yeah. Before you can use it, it's like, so like persimmons. Pers- yeah, like persimmons. Yeah, yeah. You've got to almost overripen them yep. uh, before you can actually use them. Yeah. Uh, but I was told a tip the other day: if you if your medlars aren't softening up quickly enough, throw them in the freezer for a day or two, and then take them out and thaw them, and they will bleat. Mm. <laughs> so mimic Scotland yeah. or something. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. Mimic Scotland. Yes, and um, yeah. So it's a lovely tree, but you know, more people should use those interesting old-fashioned fruit trees uh, just for the sake of keeping them going and enjoying them, and because they're so pretty. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah On the strength sure. of the lovely one at the Royal Bot Gardens, we planted the medlar at the end of our veggie patch, and it's growing away very happily. But now I'm a little bit sorry we didn't plant a quince. Or rather, I was, someone pointed out to me a few weeks back that uh, one of the loveliest Belgian fences they've seen was made out of quinces. Mm. And uh, that struck me as the ideal way to grow quinces because I have grown them in Western Australia and um, and there they just grew... Well, the, the, the tree we had grew furiously with, with fruit all over it and, and the branches all fell off halfway through the summer because of the weight of the fruit. I don't have that problem because the cockatoos take the fruit <laughs> off before they break the branches on the tree, but there you go. Oh, I've actually been using those. So we've got a white peach tree mm. and I've been using those double open-ended mesh bags. Oh, yeah. And, mm. boy, they've worked a treat. I've used them in the past and the rats have kind of had a nibble and still got through, but this year they were fantastic, you know, just and they're easy easy to tie up and untie so you can just untie one end and get yeah. a couple of the ripe peaches out and then tie them back up again. So, yeah, they, they've worked really yeah. good. Yeah, so I, I have to say with quinces, though, quinces are really pretty in flower, but they're very prone to black spot. Okay. And so by mid to late summer, they can look a bit scruffy right. and sad. Okay. Well, where we were, black spot wasn't a problem. Yeah, well, certainly my quince tree <laughs> so, gets and, black and, spot And certainly in, in terms of the flowering, it's one of the uh, – you know, in fact, I, I think it was uh, – a more handsome thing than any Japanese cherry. Mm. It's just the sheer quality of the flowers, not mm. not the abundance, but the yeah. sheer quality of the flowers against the foliage. Uh, mm. Oh, ravishing plant. Oh, yeah, mm. yeah. And, mm. and tough as. Yeah. So, mm. yeah, the old quince tree's lovely. So most probably best in a fairly tough area. I think so. Know. I mean, I wouldn't say our climate where my garden is is overly soft because it's the bottom of Mount Macedon so it's in oh, it's dry sclerophyll. Oh, it's Stephen. <laughs> no, it's not. Come up, come up today and have a look. Um, uh, we've got dry sclerophyll forest all around us and, and no topsoil yeah, but of a natural forest. sort. It's not, not, not yeah, wheat old country. <laughs> yeah, but thin yeah. forest nonetheless. Yeah, and it yeah. does get very hot and dry and we do get the hot northerlies blow through, um, which I'm slowly sheltering myself from with bamboo hedges and God knows what else. Nice. Um, uh, but it's not the easiest of climates to grow things in. But the, the quince tree does well, um, but it always by late summer looks a bit tired and miserable. Mm. Um, so it sort of puts me off because I like a tree that's going to take me right through the growing season. Mm. 
with beauty. Mm. Um, so that's why I particularly like the meddler because it doesn't get that sort of tired look about it because yep. its foliage stays good all year. Um, it colours well in autumn, whereas my quinces generally go yellow and black um, because of the spots all over the leaves. Um, and, um, yeah, so I'd still, I'd still vote for the meddler, although if I needed another small tree in a fruit tree-type things, uh, then the Chinese quince, Cydonia sinensis, actually, I reckon, takes the cake. You could be right. Yeah, because it does everything. Yeah, and one of the loveliest bonsais I've ever seen was yeah. was uh, Chinese quince. Yeah, and and the uh, the fruits are well fairly similar. They're quite usable. Uh, yeah. You have to cook them a little longer because they're harder than a conventional quince. Yeah, uh, and they do have a slightly different flavour, but no worse for that. Um, and I made pickled quinces with them one year, which we've still got some jars of that we use <laughs> when we're doing pork or. <clears throat> you know, sort of a, a rich meat. We'll cook them with the pickled quinces, and they're delicious. But the Chinese quince doesn't seem to get the black spot as badly as a normal quince. It has attractive pink blossom. Again, not foaming masses of it, but pretty blossom all over the tree. These huge egg-shaped yellow fruit on it that sort of sit at odd angles all over the tree. Then you get good autumn foliage, and it gets bark as good as a great myrtle. Yeah. So, what more could Sounds you want? Sounds pretty good. Yeah, it is the, pretty yeah, good. The, the structure of the tree and the bark is mm. uh, is particularly yeah. amazing. Yeah. yeah. So, in the winter, when it comes to bonsai, it's yeah. uh, that's the striking thing about it. It's at its best in the middle of winter. Yeah. 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 Great little tree. Yeah. And and it's again another one of these things that you should be able to grow it almost anywhere except in a bog. Uh, I would think. Um, I certainly know uh, of trees in all sorts of different climatic zones. I know of a couple of really good ones around Melbourne, suburbia. Yeah. Um, uh, I still remember the, the first one I ever saw was growing in the old retail part of the Como nursery up at um, at the basin. But Chandler's, yes. Yeah, and it grew in that garden for years and years and years. might still be there. Uh, and I can remember when I was a, a young budding nurseryman and I used to go up and buy stock from, from the Chandler family and I used to see that damn thing in the display garden every year and I kept saying to them, when are you going to grow some? Oh, yeah, we must get around to that sometime. I, I was going to ask about this because I happen to know it's a tree that's almost impossible to get hold of. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, for years I said to them, why I, I, aren't you growing it? I'll buy it. Just grow it. And, you know, they kept saying, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. But they never, ever, ever did. As far as I know, I don't think they ever grew any for sale. And it was mm. a charming little tree. And I'm sure that in the, the people who wandered around their retail display garden – Lots of them must have asked about it. I mean, it certainly stood out, and it was mm. right in a quite prominent spot near a path, and it was a good-sized one that had lovely bark and everything on it. Um, and so it must have hit people in the eye, and yet they never, ever grew it. Mm. But it is becoming a little bit available now. Um, I've got a couple of wholesale growers that I buy it from. Um, so I've normally got stock of it, um, and uh, I just love it. I think it's a gorgeous plant. Beautiful. All so right. Chinese quince. Anyhow, we should Excellent. be moving should, on to do yes, some stuff. Get on to some uh, community announcements because even though it's autumn, there's still a lot oh, to yeah. get through. Mm-hmm. All right. So I'll uh, kick off with a book launch, which is on Thursday, March the 30th from 6.30 with a meal from 6 p.m. The book is Sustainable Agriculture versus Corporate Greed. Um, sounds like it would be um, right up Graham Sargent's alley, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so Small Farmers, Food Security and Big Business and by Alan Brofton and Eleanor Garcia. 
across the world, agriculture, on which all human life depends, is under sustained attack by big business. Small farmers are everywhere being forced off the land and replaced by big corporate outfits whose sole aim is profit maximisation. The industrial farming practised by agribusiness is marked by land degradation and heavy use of insecticides, herbicides and fertilisers. Agribusiness is also a big contributor to greenhouse gas emissions. Um, so obviously a book on the discussions on that. Um, so Thursday, March the 30th. Now it is at the Purple Room Level 1 Multicultural Hub. 506 Elizabeth Street City, which is opposite the Vic Markets. And the speakers are Alan Brufton, who's the co-author, and a couple of others um, on the evening will be announced. Um, hosted by the Green Left Weekly. And if you want more information on that, the phone number is 96398622. Okay, the Kyneton and District Gardens Coach Tour. Uh, this is on Friday, March... The 31st, our traditional coach tour, time to coincide with the Melbourne International Flower and Garden Show. Uh, there's a limited availability of 46 people. Ticket price is $200, which includes return coach transport from Federation Square, uh, morning tea and lunch. Um, so celebrate autumn with Open Gardens Victoria, inspiring Kyneton and District Coach Tour. Visit five exciting cool climate gardens in Kyneton and surrounding towns which have been developed with mixes of formality, symmetry, romance and wilderness, including a visit to Frogmore Gardens and Nursery. And the gardens on the list are Meadowbank, Scotsman's Hill, St Agnes, Melrose and Frogmore. Um, so that is, um, you need to go to try booking. So this is quite a long-winded um, email that I'm about to give you. So it's uh, www.trybooking.com forward slash booking forward slash booking event summary dot ASPX question mark EID equals 2495 but I dare say if you go to um, the Open Gardens Victoria website yeah, you'll be able to get be a much to easier yeah, there's got to be a link yeah, so, be. I think the trick is to put in try booking and yeah. then and put then the put event in, in. Yeah, yeah. and it goes so, straight to because it because that, that is a bit convoluted so, yeah, yes, um, it certainly is you were right about that email address um, me. Okay, so the Cranbourne Friends of the Royal Botanic Gardens uh, Victoria have got their autumn plant sale uh, so that was on yesterday and today from 10 o'clock till 4 o'clock, a wide range of Australian plants and tubes and larger pots will be for sale, priced from $3, so really good prices there for native plants. A great opportunity to purchase plants and to look around the Australian mm. garden, of course, which um, entry is free to that, so it's well worth having a look at it at uh, this stage. So that is um, down at the Cranbourne Royal Botanic Gardens. Okay, so garden relief. Um Garden Relief, we encourage you to get involved, which is celebrating National Blueberry Day on March the 19th. I did not know it was National <laughs> Blueberry Day. I no. have to have blueberry pancakes for breakfast. Yes, yes, I think that's a good idea. <laughs> Head into your nearest participating gardens and for ideas and inspiration on, on how you, your family or your loved ones can get involved with gardens and gardenings. The day will also be used to raise funds to support the work of Beyond Blue. Fantastic. Uh, go to www.gardenrelief, so that's R-E-L-E-A-F.com.au to find your nearest participating store. 
So it seems like there's a national day for so many different things. Yeah, there, there is. Yeah. Blueberry uh, yeah. day. I think if Blue- you can think of it, there's probably a national yeah. day for it. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so the Reet Garden. Uh, this is an open garden through Open Gardens Victoria. It's open next weekend, so Saturday the 25th and Sunday the 26th of March from 10 a.m. to 4.30 p.m. Entry is $8, uh, under 18s free. Uh, it's at 9 Summit Drive in Eaglemont. And if you want more information on that, that's email info at opengardensvictoria.org.au. And we actually have a um, free double pass to give away for this garden. So if you uh, call Liz on 94190155, uh, first uh, caller through who requests that will get a double pass. So this is a garden of breadth, both in size and plant variety, and is situated adjacent to the original site of the Heidi School of Art on Mount Summit in Eaglemont. The garden has been designed, developed and maintained by Sharon Harris Garden Design and the owners over two decades. A wonderful blend of different styles thrive in a well-tended garden. So that's the REIT Garden, which is open next weekend. Jeremy, I think you've got a few. Oh, I've got a couple here. Um, the, um, the Geelong Botanic Gardens has a friend's plant sale coming up uh, next weekend, the 25th um, Saturday and Sunday, the 26th of March, uh, 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. And the um, plants, uh, the uh, friend's nursery source from the Geelong Botanic Gardens showcasing a wide selection of Australian plants, colourful perennials, hardy shrubs, pelargoniums and succulents and lots of information and all sorts happening at the uh, Geelong Botanic Gardens um, next weekend. Um, And also we have a... um, Cooking up compost uh, workshop organised by the Open Gardens Victoria people. (laughs) (laughs) And um, so these are uh, two sessions, two workshops. uh, And again, next weekend, um, the uh, 25th of March, Saturday, and um, the morning session, 9.30 to 12, and an afternoon session, 1.30 to 4 o'clock. 15 people per session, so I, th- I think people need to jump on that fairly quickly yeah, if you're yeah. interested in compost. Uh, ticket price, $30. That sounds pretty good, uh, which includes morning and afternoon tea. Sounds even better, and notes and all sorts. Um, and there, the um, I think most probably the best thing is to um, go to Open Gardens Victoria via your favourite um, search engine and... Um, uh, look up cooking up compost. Sounds good. Good. All right. You're done, are you, yep. Jeremy? Good. All right. Well, I've got the things that are happening today, in fact, so the things that you need to get your act together and get out and deal with today if you're going to do them. Um, one is a garden down in Langwarren South uh, last year, which is uh, open today, um, and it is 41 Barrett's Road, Langwarren South, Um uh, and it's $8, uh, as is the usual, children under 18 free and students $5. Uh, it's open for Open Gardens Victoria. Um, and in the opposite direction, it's my garden. So Tegurium 8 Centenary Avenue, Macedon is open today um, from 10 to 4.30. Uh, and at both those gardens, there will be... Um, 
handouts of tickets for Mifkus. Uh, I've got a couple to give away, and there's also going to be a couple to give away down at um, the Lang Warren South Garden. So that's another incentive, perhaps, to pop around today because to get a free ticket into Mifkus is not bad. It's a reasonably uh, expensive day out so if you can get in for nothing it's quite good so uh, come out and see us at both those gardens today um certainly at my garden there's uh, a botanic art show on as well that craig's put together uh and there's tea coffee and cold drinks and things available uh so you know nice day out to be had uh and also up at mount macedon if you're Coming to visit my garden, the local horticultural society have got their competitive flower show on up at the golf club and horticultural hall uh, <coughs> on Mount Macedon Road. So it's an opportunity for a gold coin to go and have a look at a fair dinkum old-fashioned flower show with, you know, prized dahlias and best hydrangeas and best berries and carrots and goodness knows what else. Um, uh, and children's entries, of course, all that sort of stuff. So that's another option so there's a couple of things you could be doing of course you can visit my nursery and go out for lunch and lots of other things as well and finally um something that's a little bit further advanced is on tuesday the 21st um the friends of burnley gardens are having one of their plant sales so um it's outside the uh student union building and parkings in yarra boulevard as per usual um and they will have a whole range of plants, including natives, exotics, and uh, edible and production type plants. And knowing the Burnley Group, there'll be plants at a very good price. So, mm. you and know, they so have such a huge range, don't they? Do. they? Yeah. yeah. So, uh, so that's on Tuesday, March the twenty-first uh, at Burnley. Uh, so that's an opportunity for you to go and start stocking up for your autumn planting. Fantastic. All right. Well, we've got one more that, which has just been rung through. Uh, the Paran Garden Club are having. Oh, sorry, the Preston Garden Club are having um, their plant sale on March 25th, so next Saturday, at the City Town Hall, which is at the corner of High and Gower Streets in Preston, and uh, that's from 12 till 6, and it's free entry. Good. So that's the lucky last. So um, now I suppose um, we should invite listeners to uh, call in if they've what got a, a question. <laughs> yes, this is the 3CR Gardening Show. My name's A.B. Bishop and in the studio with me are Stephen Ryan from Dixonia Rare Plants and Jeremy Francis from Cloud Hill. So if you'd like to um, ask us a question or give us a comment, uh, we'd love to hear from you. We're on 94190155. Good. Fantastic. So, um, Jeremy, I've got to ask you, um, you, you mentioned you just planted a medlar? Um, I've had it in for about, oh, about three or four years. Have you? I'm yeah. just intrigued because I sort of had this um, understanding. I've been to Cloud Hill a few times and explored and it seems quite finished. So you're obviously still <laughs> well, we're cautious <laughs> trees, but it's a very well. As we're saying, it's not really a tree; it's a, it's a large shrub. Yeah. And um, oh, well, we're certainly still tweaking. We're, we're uh, uh, but I do think hard about trees. It's we've got to maintain the ratio of open space to canopy uh, from now on. Yeah. And um, so we're really only planting trees if, for some reason or other, we have a disaster with a tree that's. Uh, um, 
And did you have which a disaster with the tree? No, no, no. That that was uh, that was a bit of landscaping which we did a uh, oh about five or six years back, I guess. And and as I was saying, I don't class it as a tree; it's a shrub. Yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> it's tricky that whole tree I, shrub thing, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> it's and, and, and look, it's I mean, you do have to think hard about uh, dimensions of plants as you put them in. Although, yeah, well, you can go on and on about this, but, uh, of course, when you're starting with every garden, you overplant. I mean, it's, it's just well, absolutely natural yeah. because otherwise the, 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 the spaces look ridiculous. Yeah. And so you ideally what you do is, is plant um, slow-growing um, permanent trees uh, scattered through quick-growing temporary yes. trees, yeah, and then you've got, to be, you've got to be absolutely fierce about the temporary trees, things yeah. like birches perhaps and and uh, enjoy them for the for 15 years 20 years and and then be prepared to remove them that's and that, that's a, that's a sad thing is that because that, that, that I, I uh well in the hills of course I'm surrounded by gardens and I, I live in an area where Edna Walling was uh, very active um, you know 56 years ago and um uh, more than once I've been asked to have a look at an old Edna Walling garden and walked in and it's just a jungle yeah. and, and, a, and a frightening jungle because she had such a name that no one dared do any editing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and gardens have to be. Yeah. You do have to. In fact, I always maintain that the best of gardens are made by people who are completely and utterly ruthless. Mm. Um, uh, great gardens aren't often made by soppy romantics because <laughs> they don't prune enough, they don't remove enough, they get sort of attached to things that for no rational reason sometimes just because the plant is there they keep it uh, and it may or may not be ever even performing anymore well I wouldn't say that I'm romantic specifically but I am so grateful when my plants grow that the <laughs> rab- that when the rabbits have left them alone yeah. that I'm just like I really don't want to prune you I'm yeah. just going to let you grow you do whatever you want yeah well yeah. look everybody has a different attitude to gardening but I'm I'm thinking of you know that sort of upper echelon of gardening where gardening is done to the nth degree and it's very very organized very thought out and 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 very well done um it has even if it looks relaxed and 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 easy going in fact that is often the hardest type of garden to in fact make work i mean if you need to trim hedges you can see they need trimming but if you've got to manage lots of different plant material that are all growing in close proximity to each other without them ending up looking like balls on sticks or whatever (laughs) um, then that actually takes quite some finesse Mm. uh, and you have to be at it on a regular basis all the time and you know managing material so that you know one thing's not swamping the other and it's actually quite complicated gardening Mm. and uh, the biggest compliment people ever make to me is um, uh, your garden looks like it's easy to look after. <laughs> yeah, do nothing. I just do yeah, it. I, it just does its <laughs> thing. You know, I just let it rip. You know, and uh, uh, because that means that I'm what I'm actually aiming for is actually coming across because yeah. uh, it's got to look relaxed and like it's effortless and that nature's done it all because uh, it's the sort of garden I'm trying to create. I'm not trying to create a really garden-esque garden. I'm trying to create a wildish woodlandy style of garden. Um, and it can be quite a difficult garden to, to actually manage because you do have to be on top of it all the time. And you have to realise that, you know, things need to be whipped into shape and, and, and controlled, uh, but you can't prune them in such a way that it looks like it. Mm. 
you know, even I've got a laurel hedge in the back of my garden, which is around a little semi, uh, around a little circular spot where I've got a seat sitting. It's what I call the where I hide when the dishes need doing spot. <laughs> oh, uh, oh. Yes. Uh, You've put it out there now. Yeah, oh yeah, I have rather. <laughs> but because it's laurel hedging and laurel have big leaves, uh, I still want it to be a hedge per se. I don't want it to be um, just an amorphous mass of laurel. Mm. But to keep it looking smart without any obvious signs of of human interference, I have to prune the hedge with a pair of secateurs Mm. because if you cut through any of the leaves, it's really obvious and you're at close proximity to that hedge because it's a small area, probably about the size of our studio here, which doesn't help people who don't know the size of our studio. But for those of in it, it, it's a quite small area. So you've got this circle of hedge with just a gap through it and I actually get out there with the secateurs and I prune the hedge with the secateurs. Yeah. And, it's, and it's above head height so it's you know probably two metres tall or a little more. Uh, it doesn't take actually as long as you'd think um, but it's the only way to keep it looking sort of vaguely natural. Yeah, yeah, it's, you know, a, it's, so. a, it's a difference between uh, if you're using camellias for a hedge and uh, uh, I always suggest uh, to people well use a camellia sasanqua because the leaves are much smaller yeah. Yeah. and if yeah. you Using a, a, a hedger, a machine, uh, you're chopping leaves in half and you get very little scorch, uh, any damage with a um, uh, using a small leafed camellia. But on the other hand, a camellia japonica, they hedge just as well, mm. but no good with uh, mechanical shears. You've got to use secateurs. Yeah, they look dreadful. Yeah. And I learnt that trick when I was a young... Well, i just finished my apprenticeship and I was on a scholarship trip to England and I was working in... Brighton Parks Department, and they had a garden there which was their formal rose garden um, in Preston Park. I can still remember the name of all these places, and it was sort of a tri. It was a <laughs> triangle. Yeah, it was a, it was a triangular rose garden, and it had yew hedging all around it. And in the yew hedges were alcoves all the way around. Yew hedging. Yeah. Wow. And in the alcoves, though, they had bay trees clipped as sort of egg shapes. And all those bay trees were cut with secateurs. Uh, they were never pruned with the, the or hedge trimmers or even hedge shears. They were always done with sec- secateurs. So, again, you didn't cut through the bay leaves. And and that you hedging is still existing? And as still... far as I know, yeah. yeah that... I was there 20 what, what, years later. Yeah, what's your experience with you? Because I always oh, found it's it... hopeless in this country. Yeah, I've always found it yeah. very problem- problematical yeah. as a hedge. Yeah, yeah mm. it's, it's hopeless in Australia. I don't quite know what it is, but it seems to get all sorts of nasty fungal diseases and things, and you, you end up with plants just suddenly collapsing and dying yeah. in the middle of the hedge. And so although you hedging seems to be still de rigueur in gardens of, no, of note in Europe, uh, it's never really worked here, to my knowledge. I don't know of a decent you hedge anywhere in Australia. Um, yes, <laughs> there were one or two in the hills, mm. were, uh, but, but well, good. yes, that was one opposite us, which which uh, someone removed to my horror, yeah. uh, simply because I knew how difficult it was to grow as a hedge, and someone had managed to persuade all these plants to survive, and there they were as a yew hedge. It was only about 15, 20 metres long, but all the same, a yeah. proper yew hedge. Where we have quite a few yews, but they're all individual plants, mm. so they've just, in fact, they're all seedlings, yeah. and some and the ewes do settle down and grow. If anyone wants to grow you, they're one of the most amazing things to grow in the garden. But the best thing is to grow four or five scattered around. You're going to lose half of them straight yeah. away. But eventually one or two of them will find the right spot yeah. and take yeah. off yeah. and just treat it as a single specimen, yeah. topiary specimen. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's yeah. the best way to go. Mm. Uh, I've stopped growing 
Texas Bacata altogether in any of its forms because I'd grow a batch of them and I'd have some Irish ewes and I'd have some English ewes and then one would just die for no apparent reason in the middle of the batch. <laughs> yeah. And I was always nervous that if I was selling one, it was the next one that was going to go. Yeah. And so I didn't feel it was good for my reputation. So <laughs> I stopped growing them altogether. But I'm playing at the moment growing some Texas chinensis, one of the, the ah. Chinese yew. I've struck some cuttings quite recently of it uh, that were given to me by a, a very good gardener down in the Otways. Um, and I'm going to play with it and see what it does. Uh, it might be an easier tree. I don't know. So, I, ma- I managed to get hold of a little bit of a uh, a batch of Texas um, cross media hixii. Oh yes, yes, I know the plant. And only only a handful of them. I planted four of them, and somehow they're all growing. Mm. And they've they've been growing now for about five years. So I'm starting to relax a little bit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> Give them I another think... five years, then I'll be confident. Yeah. Well, and I think that's the thing, though, that there are because there's other species of use out there. There are ones that, in fact, could well be fine, uh, because most of our experiences with Taxus Bacata and its forms, um, they're the ones we seem to be having trouble with. So maybe some of the other species are actually much easier. So uh, I thought this other Taxus chinensis would be worth having a crack oh, at. And, and it's just so annoying because it is the most fabulous thing for clipping. You know, it's a, it's a conifer. You can cut right back. You can cut it, uh, cut it down to a stump and, and it will burst shooting. out from the stump. And we've actually done that two or three times. And uh, oh, the, the history of it and, and the, the, everything about the taxes is absolutely fascinating. Yeah. Except difficult in our climate. Difficult, tricky, mm. yes. Well, mm. we should get to a caller. Oh, good. But first of all, um, I'll just quickly say that the uh, double pass has gone. Oh, good. So um, you can stop um, ringing up and Liz uh, <laughs> <laughs> is waving furiously at me. It's gone, it's gone. And also with the uh, Preston uh, plant sale, I made a bit of a mistake. It's actually the Preston Garden Show with plants for uh, sale, and it's on from 2 till 6 at the City Town Hall, the corner of High and Gower Street. And so that's next weekend. So that's the Preston Garden Show with plants for sale, which uh-huh. sounds terrific. And right now we will go to Anne in Northcote. Thanks for hanging on, Anne. Hello. Hi. Good morning. Hi. Um, sorry, I've a bit of feedback. <clears throat> it's about... The next door neighbours who've um, grown a fig, creeping fig, on an old paling fence that um, they put the fig up after I espaled a line of camellias, camellia sanguisqua. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the fig creeps into my side of the fence all the time because I've got the sunny side. And I don't know how to control it. I'm forever picking it out of the fence because obviously it's going to continue to want to come into my um, espaled. My espalier is only about um, 500 mil from the fence because it's only a narrow walkway there. So I'm just wondering if I put something up on my side to to kind of um, inhibit the growth, then... When the weather's hot, it's going to um, badly affect my camellias because I do get a bit of afternoon sun on that side. Mm. I don't think you're going to stop the ficus, personally. Um, I mean, it's a very vigorous plant, um, and it's going to try and come through no matter what. And even Mm. if you put some sort of solid barrier up, like, I don't know, tin or something like that, it'll go under it or over it or around it or whatever. Um, 
I don't see any other way other than regular trimming it back um, and just get into the habit of doing it as a, as a very regular thing in the garden um, because there's no way of controlling it otherwise. It's a really tricky plant. It's, it looks lovely when it's young, but it, it's the, that's the juvenile foliage that you're looking at. In fact, I was looking at a ficus pumilla in Phillip Island last weekend uh, and uh, advising the owner of the garden, remove it. Mm. <laughs> uh, and uh, the, the root mass that it was sending out was making it, it, it impossible to grow anything in this rather tiny garden. And um, it's a similar situation, although no neighbour involved. Uh, it's a really tricky uh, – it's a political problem, I think, that you've got here. I'd, I'd, I'd – um, if you can go to your next door neighbour yeah. and suggest that you've got a major problem here and, and um, um, well, offer to supply plants which are less competitive, I think it's, it comes back uh, to that. It's, it's their whole side view. Like, it's, I couldn't ask them to remove it. I, but what I... What I've been uh, okay, trying... You could say that, that, that you know, this turns into a tree, and I have seen, <laughs> this was in Perth, right on the edge of King's Park, uh, uh, an old, quite historic brick building, which uh, someone had planted this, uh, Fikes Pumilla, and, and well, 70, 80 years down the track, the, the, this building had disappeared underneath a fig tree, a, a sort of a, 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 with trunks uh, six inches in diameter, and um, it, it looked like something out of Hansel and Gretel. It was frightening. And it was just one plant that had completely enveloped this rather historic little brick cottage. So, I, I mean, these, these things grow really big. Mm. Yeah, well, I, but I can't see any way of getting around it. If they're, no. it, you know, if it's their fence line that is, the, the fig is in their view, I mean, they're obviously trying to hide their fence, which is fair enough. Mm. Um, of course, the other way of looking at it is to ig- ignore your camellias, which I'm, uh, I know you don't want to do because you're espaliering them, but if you mm. didn't have the camellias there and the fig was just let go through both sides <laughs> of the fence and you just trimmed yeah. it, um, then you're actually then turning it into an asset. And although the fence is old, in time the fig will actually hold it up. Uh, so you may, in fact, find that you never have to replace the fence because it'll have disappeared <laughs> inside the fig. And as long as it's trimmed uh, and kept in order, um, it can make quite a nice green mat. Um, but you're going to have to fight it if you're going to keep your camellias. That's the only mm. issue. How many camellias do you have there, Anne? Uh, nine. Oh, that's and I've been growing them for about ten years. Oh. <laughs> yeah, it's, it, it could be difficult to make that decision, but it is a decision that you could make. Is you say, all right, well, you know, you sometimes can't fight the inevitable, um, mm. and if you end up with a nice, well-trimmed green screen of ficus on your side as well as your neighbours on the other side, that would make life quieter. Mm. And and you well, wouldn't have I do to fight try it. And- I, put, I do try and control it, but it's been such a growing year this year that... Well, it um, has, of course, yes. ...that it's just, you know, a lot more maintenance this year. But normally it's, you know, I do it sort of every few months. I just... But uh, the solution for me is I'll, I'll try and pull the loose leaves off. You know, I, I pull them. Mm. But then, of course, it pulls more of the stuff through the palings, yeah. which is encouraging 
future growth. So and it's then also I've, potentially having an impact on the solidity of the fence too. If you keep oh, pulling it, stuff it, through, uh, it, yes. could, it could in fact do that. I'd be more inclined actually to have a pair of shears and shear it back to the fence so you're not having so much uh, I'd physical use, I'd have to use um, secateurs and just cut it, but mm. I thought cutting would encourage growth. Well, pulling so it's going to either. do the same. Yeah. It won't matter. Right. But then what I'm trying to do is carefully spray it with a bit of a salt solution so that it just backs right off. It won't do that. Uh, and, in fact, you're more likely to have uh, damage done to your camellias in due course. That's right. Uh, because, because the ficus will grow in salt-infested soils right on the beach. Ah. So hmm. the amount of salt you'd have to put on it to actually discourage the ficus would be more than the camellias could possibly cope with. Yeah. So that I can't see that working either. And, and look, I might add, salt may well be not a poison per se, uh, mm. like in using a, a glyphosate or something like that, but it still is toxic in your ground. And so it's yeah. mildly toxic, I would say. Yeah. yeah so, yeah. you know, I, I don't like using salt as, as a deterrent for anything in the garden <laughs> because I think you, you can get a salt build-up and then you'll end up with um, uh, a damaged garden soil. Um, mm. And I don't think it helps things like worms and, and microorganisms and things either. So yeah. I'm not keen on that idea at all. I think a, a management issue is what you need to look at it as. And I personally would just manage the ficus because mm. I can't see any other way around it. Mm. Butter yeah. up your next door neighbour and yeah. <laughs> see if yeah. you can make a see if you can alter their their. Their, their idea about how they want a garden. Yeah, but the issue then is if you did get rid of the ficus, if it's an old fence, there's a very good chance the fence will need replacing at the same time. Mm. Because by the time you pull all the ficus mm. off the fence, mm. I think you'll find that half the palings will come with it uh, and you'll be right back to square one and you'll need to put in a new fence. Mm. So yeah. then you're up potentially for thousands of dollars and you've got big-footed fences coming in and probably crushing your camellias. Mm. Mind you, I can make some suggestions about how you can landscape the Sasanqua camellias. So they're just stunning things. Yeah. And, and uh, you, you could uh, uh, all sorts of... Move <laughs> them. Move yeah, them. look, it, it, needs, it needs half an hour to sketch out, but uh, uh, Sasanqua camellias is one of the best things for hedging and your neighbour could enjoy you, your Sasanqua hedge. But uh, that, that could be something happening down the track. Yes, well, the neighbours have changed. So the original neighbours, I said to them, well, you don't need to put anything up on that trellis because my Sasanquas will be a beautiful, um, you know, it'll be a beautiful... Um, Screen for them. Yeah, and well, it should, should go over top the fence and they, 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 they enjoy your... Uh, it's just taken forever for them to grow, like forever. And uh, mm. now, of course, they've got competition um, for... Yeah, but I keep getting this overhang of fig and now they've put a grapevine up and oh, it's all nasty. Uh, yeah, unfortunately you can select your friends but not your neighbours. Mm. Oh, that, yeah. Look, they're good people. They they just bought a garden that um, somebody else put in and they don't know what they're doing in the garden well, at it all. It sounds like so. they could be talked into maybe removing the ficus. Mm, I think not. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, sorry we can't be more helpful. No, but you were because there are all questions that I keep asking myself and I, I didn't have the answers. So that's that's what you've done. You've provided me with the answers. All right. Thank Good you. on you, Anne. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye, Anne.
that's that is a tricky yeah. one, isn't it's it? It's always it's, difficult. Uh, oh. Yeah. And look, I had a sort of in a way a similar issue in reverse at my place because I had a, a cyclone fence between me and a neighbour. The cyclone fence had always been there, well, since before I bought the place, so we just left the fence intact. And there'd been just ordinary English ivy growing on it. Um, and I kept it trimmed on my side and kept it neat and tidy, and that was fine. But the neighbour on the other side never did anything with it. Mm. Um, And so, of course, it ran across her garden beds and started climbing her trees and all sorts of stuff. So she got some men in to deal with it, and I got home one day, and it was gone. Oh, my goodness. They'd just taken it down off the fence. They hadn't talked to me about it. There was no discussion at all. And so I could walk up onto my veranda, look straight through the end of the veranda, straight at her smalls on the washing line (laughs) when I got home. (laughs) And I was horrified. Uh, I mean, I would never have planted ivy, but it was there, and I managed it, and, and... you know, it was the best possible thing to do was just to manage what was there. Um, and certainly, if something's going to impinge on your neighbour, you at least should tell them what mm, you're about mm, to do mm. and, you know, give them a chance to have a chat to you about it and what have you. So anyhow, I got home, it was all too late. Uh, these guys had come in and they'd ripped it down off the fence and uh, they'd done a very thorough job, I might add. There was bugger all left. There wasn't bits of ivy anywhere. It was just amazing how they'd cleaned it all out. Maybe I, it was a miscommunication. <laughs> Maybe she said, take it out on my side and it ended up coming yeah, up. I don't know. I never really discussed it with her because mm. I thought I, I could end up being, well, I'm loud anyway, but it could have ended up being an exceedingly loud conversation because <laughs> uh, I was so upset about this. Um, but then I thought, all right, well, it's done now. I have to live with this. So I went to the nursery and I collected a whole pile of clumping bamboos, uh, planted them along my side. I now have control because they're mine. They're not hers or on a combined fence. Uh, She can do whatever she wants on her side. And now I can't see her at all uh, because my Fargesia has now made this three and a half metre tall, fantastic green screen. Uh, And actually it's better in lots of ways because it grows taller than what the fence is so it gives me more screening so it cuts out her roof line as well uh, but apart from that too it, bamboo being a light airy looking plant it doesn't feel so uh, enclosing mm. you know you feel like you could part it and walk through mm. uh, whereas the ivy was so dark and so somber yeah. looking yeah. Uh, that it was just this block you know so it was it, it, it was it was a green fence, basically. Um, and so the bamboo is a much nicer alternative because the garden may or may not carry on beyond it. It doesn't look so enclosing. Yeah, bamboos can make one of the best hedges. Uh, I was once asked to suggest a hedge uh, for between two blocks of terrace houses with a little gap and, yeah. and then deep shade except for about 20 minutes it's at lunchtime and, and bright sunshine. So it's quite a difficult spot. Mm. The old fence had collapsed, and uh, I suggested bamboo. They, they wanted an instant um, mm. effect, uh, but because there were several people involved, they, they could go to a bit of fuss planting it. So they actually dug two trenches either side of the boundary with a with a trough in between, a gap in between. They filled the trenches with concrete oh my <laughs> down down to about sixty centimeters, down to about two feet, and. Um, and uh, then planted, uh, well, running bamboo in this case, yeah. which kind of filled up this uh, the, the the old boundary fence, and they, they there was access on both sides, and they had um, because this is how bamboo wants to grow; it self shades, and it's both shade tolerant and sun tolerant. Yeah. And but the more shade it's in, uh, the 
lusher it looks, yeah. the more dramatic it looks. And so they almost instantly had this fabulous screen um, and both sets of neighbours could enjoy it. But they did go to a lot of fuss planting yeah. it in the well, first place. if you are going to put in a running bamboo, that is very sensible. Mm. Yes. Because otherwise you create a monster. Yeah. Um, if, it, if running bamboo is planted properly, it's actually a low-maintenance plant. Of so course it is. And the Japanese use it all the time in, in, in quite intricate gardens because they know how to plant it in the first place. It's, it's planting it carefully. Mm. And really it's not much more, generally speaking, uh, to planting a um, running bamboo than planting a, an advanced tree. Uh, generally, rather than using concrete, so that's most probably a little bit of overkill. Mm. Uh, if you really want to be sure about it, that'll do. But uh, just using a root barrier, mm. uh, a commercial root barrier, will do the same thing. And uh, so you just dig your hole, and uh, a good-sized hole, and line it with a root barrier to the correct depth and plant your bamboo in the middle. And, and then it's a case of just removing the occasional old culm, and you've got to, you can harvest the old culms through elsewhere in the garden. They make fantastic steaks. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, feel, I never buy steaks. I've got enough bamboo in the garden at home. Mm. No, we've and got it, a and, bit. <laughs> and if I want a, uh, a steak, I can't imagine why I would, but if I wanted a steak 15 or 20 feet tall... I can cut one. So I can get a steak any size I want out of my garden. And I've got, you know, some fairly big uh, diameter bamboo as well as some fine stuff. Um, And I've got runners and I've got clumpers. uh, And I like the runners because you can actually create almost a grove that you can walk into, which you can't sort of do with a clumping bamboo because all the stems are quite closely packed together. Um, And it's just a management issue. Yeah. Um, And I do find that if you keep your bamboo a little on the just on the verge of struggling so you know if there's a lot of root competition and you don't water it terribly much as long as it doesn't actually desiccate and so you keep it ticking over and even some of the running bamboos don't actually become particularly running they they'll sort of sit pat i mean i've got japanese golden bamboo in the garden at home as a hedge on the other side of the property and I occasionally have to remove the odd column that comes up outside the area. And because it's on a boundary, I have to do it on the neighbour's side if anything comes up on her side, and I've always promised I would. Uh, but we just get an odd one because I never water it. I never look after it, particularly other than cleaning it up every yeah. so often. And it looks quite smart. Mm. Um, and I've got a rockery in front of it. So this is Folastecchi's... Uh, Aurea. Uh, Aurea, right. Yes. Yeah. And, and it can run. Uh, mm. I've seen it go yeah. go off like a rocket in some places. Have you got yeah. quite hard soil? Like uh, it's not the best in the world yeah. in that area. Yeah. And, of course, on the neighbour's side, there's almost no soil. It's just, well, part of the way up the boundary. It's her driveway, so it's a gravel driveway. Yeah. Uh, so it's never watered. It's, you know, so there's no real encouragement for the bamboo to grow through onto her side. Yeah. And the only time it ever did was she had a pile of mulch put down on her driveway once, and it sat there for about six months before she moved it. And, of course, the mulch was cool and damp, and the bamboo decided to come up in the middle of the mulch in her driveway. Uh, And she took responsibility. She said, it's my fault. I know I left that mulch there for so long. Uh, She made a habitat for the bamboo. Uh, But I dug out the piece that was going awry, and it all went back to normal again. Yeah. Yeah, so I'm not particularly frightened, although I have planted what's supposed to be one of the world's most vigorous running bamboos, which I may or may not regret in due course, uh, and that's the Jap- uh, Chinese walking stick bamboo. Oh, I wouldn't dare. <laughs> I have. I've, I've kept it in the pot for years and years and years, yeah. and I've admired it on the pot. But but I, I grant you that it needs to be in the ground to... to oh, to really to, show it yeah, off. To, to, uh, yeah, it doesn't quite... It has... Um, quite thin, whippy calms with the nodes which uh, form discs and yeah. it's just extraordinary. I, yeah, there's a weird story attached to that, that it, it yeah. was growing somewhere in the middle of China and uh, 
but the the local so it's a it was obviously a local form of of um, something and the but the locals kept it hidden and then they turned it into walking sticks which yeah. they exported everywhere and they were turning up thousands of miles away uh, this is 2000 years ago mm. uh but the, only the only this one village knew where the original plant was the original grove uh, so these walking sticks were highly sought after uh, yes. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and uh, the Western world didn't see the plant till the 1980s, uh, and somehow or another it found its way into uh, England, and I'm not altogether sure via appropriate um, well, ways. Well, I, 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 there, there was a curator of the West Australian Museum, um, Jamie... I can't think of his name, but he claimed to be the one to prize it out of the grip of the Chinese. And I first saw it growing in here, in a pot in his back garden yeah. uh, in uh, suburban Perth, uh, not looking terribly happy on my dad. Yeah. Well, it was probably pining for its nice forest in China. <laughs> I, might, I, I could go on to add that he claimed at the time, he, he was one of these plant nutters, he claimed to have the best collection of bamboos uh, in the world outside Japan and they were pretty well all in pots in his back garden. And because he was a curator of the uh, West Australian Museum, he had uh, special, he had good contacts. <laughs> and he was a plant nutter par excellence. And, mm. and he had about 300 bamboos, um, all of them all of them staggering along in the Perth heat. <laughs> yeah. Incredible. Well, we should give out our number again yes. if anyone wants to join us. Um, if you want to have a chat, ask a question, uh, give us a call on 94190155. Now, it uh, was St. Patrick's Day a couple of days ago. Did uh, either of you rush out and plant your sweet peas? No. No? I didn't drink any green beer either. <laughs> um, a lot of people did very early. Yes. <laughs> uh, but it is the traditional time to put in your sweet pea seed. So, yes, if you are going to grow them. I used to grow them for years and... Um, I don't know. Life has just got so busy lately that planting annuals has almost become too hard. Mm. You know, uh, uh, if it's a self-seeding annual, I'm very happy to keep it. So if it's something that self-seeds itself around the garden, uh, but actually raising and planting annuals each year, apart from vegetables in the vegetable garden, I just don't seem to have the time for anymore. Mm. Uh, as much as I would love to have time to fiddle with, you know, having pyramids of sweet peas everywhere and so forth, uh, I just don't have the time. And it's sort of sad because they're lovely. And you, I mean, you can don't have to only plant them on St Patrick's Day, of course. It's no, of course, you know, a that's... wide window of opportunity. Yeah, but it does give you a reminder of what time of the yep. year. It's like people who say you should always put your Daphne cuttings in between Christmas and New Year. I mean, you can go either way of, of that as well, but it does remind you of the time that is appropriate to mm. do a certain job. Mm. So, yeah, so it sort of works. But, no, I didn't put any sweet peas in. Did you put any sweet no, peas in? No, I'm afraid not. Yeah. <laughs> I've got one or two perennial peas scattered around yeah. and uh, enjoy those. And But you, you're right, they are uh, just superb. It's one of my childhood memories of uh, people growing sweet peas and yeah. farming areas of Western Australia. Yeah, yeah, yeah I recently found out that you were a farmer. I did yes. not know yeah. that before. <laughs> yeah, I know a bit about growing wheat. Yeah, okay. <laughs> for better or worse. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. How, how long did you grow wheat for? Oh, uh, quite a while, 20 years. Yeah. yeah so long enough to get tired of it? <laughs> uh, well, uh, yes and no. Yeah. Wheat can be lovely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm, I'm sort of working on a writing project at the moment and, and uh, crop rotations and uh, yeah, they're really interesting if you 
get, get in the mood. <laughs> yeah. and, and so what made you change to move on over here? And oh, well, somehow became interested in, in gardening and in, in landscaping and also plants. Um, oh, I, I can actually remember the year. It was, it was about 1974, there I say, most probably I, I shouldn't have said that. But I was, I, the previous year I'd been one of, one of those... Uh, uh, slightly drunken and, and very, very cheap camping tours around Europe. And, uh, and then 1974, the year later, I was thinking, gosh, we saw one or two gardens, so one or two really interesting gardens. And for some reason or other, I wasn't paying any attention at all. And so 1974, um, so 1974, so it was quite a few years before we actually bit the bullet and, and sold the farm and moved to the Dandenongs. Yeah. But, um, that's a big change, really, isn't mm. it? it is well, I, well, the thing is, deciding, making a decision like that, we, we did have the opportunity to spend a year or two thinking about how we do it and where we do it. So, And did you know you wanted to build a garden? Oh, yeah, yeah. So it's all fairly deliberate. Yeah. Uh, you know, within the practicalities of finding a, an interesting property. Yeah, and and did you have friends here? Is that what maybe, or you just? Oh, for that really was part of it. Part of it. I was, I was a bit of a plant nut, like most gardeners, and I was bringing in um, ornamental grasses. Actually, they were a bit tricky in the eighties. Um, uh, yeah, that stirred up the quarantine people in Perth. I never said anything like it before. <laughs> uh, most most plants when they come through quarantine come through Tasmania or Victoria and. Um, but there was a young bloke in the Perth quarantine station who who really went to town on some of these plants I was bringing in, uh, which I couldn't track down in Australia in mail order nurseries. So, and then because I was we we were farming north of Perth, very hot, dry area. Talking about salt, there was a little bit of salt in the water, which meant we had to water very heavily to push the salt through the soil profile to stop it from building up on the surface. And boy, you silly about salt. Mm. <laughs> we had a lot of it, and um, but we I had these plants, and I, I, I was not absolutely sure they would survive our summers. So mm. I was giving them away to nurseries uh, uh, scattered around Australia, uh, including a nursery in the Dandenongs. David Glenn's, actually, <laughs> Lambley, not not far from from Stephen, and um, and then been in touch with these nurseries. I became more well at a certain point. It was becoming ridiculous. I was bringing in quite a few hundreds of plants and then giving them away to people who were making lots of money out of them. And oh, what am I doing? <laughs> Being philanthropic, possibly. <laughs> but at least they kept them alive, and there's quite a few of those are kicking around through the nursery industry now, so Achilles uh, and things. And um, I, I was concentrating on plants which I thought would survive in hot, dry areas. Yep. So I actually know quite a bit about that rather boring, limited field. It's nice to actually live in an area where we have uh, a, much, uh, a much wider choice. Mm. Mm, much higher rainfall. I noticed that mm. Fernie Creek had the highest Melbourne average for uh, February. Yeah, yeah well, that's the beauty of the Dandongs yeah. is it actually tends to, during the winter, it's only slightly, the rainfall's slightly above Melbourne, but not a lot. But in the summer, it's quite a bit more. Mm. And that makes a huge difference. Since this summer has just been glorious. We, we've uh, 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 a little bit cooler than average. Well, it's seen cooler than average. We've, we've so used to heat nowadays that... Uh, um, but the, the critical thing was we were receiving rain every few days uh, with like 
clockwork right up until a few weeks ago. In the last four or five weeks, it's become very dry. Yeah. And uh, you know, Stephen and I were discussing this earlier, the climate's becoming... That's the trouble with climate change. It's 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 not actually that things are obviously hotter. It's that things become erratic, and there are very mm. technical reasons why this is happening. But uh, but twice now in the last uh, five or six years, we've had very hot, dry autumns. Which well, I'll be thankful they've happened in the autumn. You can enjoy them in the autumn. If they'd happened in summer, yeah. well, it, we mm. wouldn't be enjoying them one little bit. Mm. Well, we've got a um, mature lemon, mature lime, and a mature fig, and. Um, they usually, you know, just get watered along with the um, rest of the veggie garden, whatever. But uh, last week, we all of a sudden noticed that they've all curled up the leaves, the oh, fig leaves mm. were drying. And I was like, oh, my goodness, I actually have to go out and literally water them. So we put the um, sprinklers on them for a few hours mm. and gave them a massive soaking. And then by the next day, the leaves were fine again. But it really got me thinking because we yeah. haven't specifically had to do that, really. They no, just, yeah. no in know. fact, I didn't really unroll my hoses and get them out into the garden until surprisingly late this year. Yeah. No, so I'm looking forward to a comparatively low water bill. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, now, Stephen, we should get to some of your plants. Oh, yes, so, I brought a couple um, of bits and pieces along. It's, a, it's a, an eclectic mix today. Yeah, There's no particular reasoning. You, you often bring in plants that have a similar sort of feature and these yeah. ones have got the, the greys and the Yeah, they've got interesting browns. foliage I guess yeah. is about the only real connection with them because they're, they're plants from different parts of the world, uh, they're plants that require or like quite different growing conditions um, and uh, and you'd use them in quite different ways in the garden I guess as well, so it's, it's a bit of a mixed bag and the reason it's a mixed bag is these are things that came off my trading table as I walked out the garden this morning because uh, I always have a plant stall on when I have my garden open and because I was busy in the garden yesterday I didn't have time to go up to the nursery or select things It's okay, you don't have to justify so, to us either. So it's a random selection but anyhow, it's an interesting selection nonetheless and we'll start with this particular one uh, which is a Persicaria Persicaria micro Cephala red dragon um, and it's a herbaceous perennial it'll grow up to about a meter tall about a meter wide uh, sometimes a little more uh, and it has the most beautiful leaves that are sort of shades of green silver and burgundy mm. uh, and sort of pinky red stems it gets tiny white flowers in clusters towards the autumn and it's got some just starting to form on the top of this little plant I bought in um, and it makes a big full bushy looking perennial it'll fill up quite a big space it likes a fair bit of light because if you put in too much shade it loses its color but it does like dampness a lot of the persicarias are actually almost marginal plants for streams and things like that. So if I were growing it in a garden, I'd either put it in a damp spot, which is an obvious thing to do, or keep it really well watered, or perhaps even grow it as a large pot plant sitting in a saucer of water for the summer. And it makes a, quite a good pot plant. It can get rather rangy in time, but then you just shear it off at the ground and up it comes again. It never, like most per, uh, other perennials, it disappear completely underground in the winter. This seems to never be completely dormant, so you've always got some of the pretty leaves on it, uh, even though it'll be a much smaller stature in the winter, particularly if you're in a cold area. Uh, in fact, in cold areas, the frost may well knock it back, which is actually quite a good thing because it gets rid of a lot of the old stems. If you don't get it knocked back of the frost, you've probably got to knock it back yourself. Uh, to tidy it up again for the year but if it's ha if it's happy where you put it it's incredibly quick growing um, this plant is in a what we would have once called a six inch pot uh, I still can't get used to 14 centimetres and 20 <laughs> centimetres and things I don't know why but anyhow I'm just too bloody old to learn um, but I think it's a 14 centimetre pot and I struck this as a cutting less than six weeks ago mm. 
So it's a foot tall. It's, it's yeah. quite robust, that's for yeah, sure. Yeah. And, and I put the cuttings. The cuttings were struck in eight days and ready to go into tubes. And about two weeks later, the tubes had roots hitting the sides. Mm. So I popped them up into six-inch pots. So it's probably one of the quickest turnover plants you could possibly have <laughs> as a nurseryman. Uh, the issue, of course, is that it grows so quickly that it also pot-bounds itself quite quickly and starts looking scruffy. So you need to turn them over fairly fast. Otherwise, your nursery stock can look a bit... Scruffy, but it's a nice plant, and there's actually a lot of lovely persicarias out there, but you don't see terribly many of them being grown. One or two are vicious, nasty weeds, but um, yeah, well, they're quite quite closely related to. Well, they've split the the, the persicarias from the uh, polygonums, haven't they? Yeah. And the polygonums are the ones that we should not touch. Yeah. Um, yes, Japanese knotweed. Uh, Japanese knotweed is the the terror of the. Uh, of the garden world, and, yeah. and well, that's I have to say, quite, I don't know quite how closely much, related. I wonder how weedy it could be here, because it does do, it's become particularly weedy in England in cool climates, Yeah, but I wonder, probably in the Dandenongs it would. Yeah, I'm uh, sure it would. Yeah, it'd take off, <laughs> but I can't imagine it ever becoming the weed it is in Europe in drier parts of Australia. I, I'm sure you're right. <laughs> but nonetheless, yes, you do need to be somewhat specific about which plants in that group you put in. Um, the, I'll just add that the Persicarias, uh, the antique perennial uh, nursery, is yeah. introducing a whole series of very ornamental Persicarias, and uh, they're things to watch out for. Mm. Uh, again, growing uh, much the same way, uh, but uh, uh, all with dramatic flowers, uh, mm. whereas uh, whereas this one, uh, Red Dragon, uh, the flowers are rather insignificant. Yeah, it's the foliage effect. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. No, it's, quite, it's quite an open shop, so would you sort of use it as part it, of like a... It, it, it becomes it becomes or? quite a dense fountain yeah, it does. of, of it gets a clump. Right. from okay. ground level yeah. as it gets older. As you know, this one is basically a struck cutting in a way, uh, so it hasn't had a chance to sort of fill out. But it can become quite dense. And I've got two or three of them in the garden home near my ponds, which apparently we're supposed to now call billabongs. I was on ABC Radio yesterday and I said something about, I've got these ponds, but they're sort of quite large and so they're probably bigger than your average pond, but they're not exactly a dam because that would mean that they'd need to be out in a paddock somewhere. Uh, And lake sounds affectatious um, and they're not quite lake size anyway. So somebody rang in and said, I've got billabongs. Right. (laughs) So so I've got some growing around my billabongs (laughs) and... um, I love it. I think it's a, a wonderful plant. And when it, as soon as it starts looking scruffy, I just go through it with the head shears, cut it off a ground level, and then when weeks, it's up again. And the new foliage is particularly dramatic in colour. So it's really pretty when it's newly shooting up. And, uh, yes, it's a plant for the impatient gardener, definitely. Mm. If you want impact fairly fast, this Persicaria can give it to you. Well, I just love the leaves. They look like they're airbrushed. Yeah. Just going sideways here. I read very recently that the word lake, the term lake, was more or less invented by Capability Brown, by, by Lancelot Brown. Yeah. Uh, he was, uh, he was, he's only been known as Capability Brown after he died, but he was the 18th century English gardener who kind of changed the face of England. It was his 300th uh, birthday um, last year, and there was a fabulous article in Country Life. Did you Country send your regards? Uh, I should have. Yeah. I should have. Actually, because he, he is, he, he's just such an extraordinary character. The, the, the most amazing statistic was the, uh, the, this, this person had gone to a great deal of trouble researching his gardens. He was very, very, very busy. 
he worked on about 300 gardens. They were most of them quite big. Oh, yeah. If you add the acreage together, according to this article, they came close to half a million acres. And no landscaper in history for the last 5,000 years has come anywhere near close yeah. to doing the work that Capability Brown did. But one of the things he did was it was introduce the idea of this natural pond, yeah. which he, he was calling a lake. And this was back in the 1840s. Now, if you look at the English language previous to the 1840s, lake was a word which hardly it was existed, but it was extremely rare word. Uh, the Lakes District now, they don't talk about lakes in the Lakes District. Lakes District, they talk about waters. You know the. Yeah. Uh, uh, Windermere well, water. <laughs> yeah, they, they they have waters. So if you if you the people the locals talk about waters, not about lakes. The whole area is known as select districts, but that's quite recent. Capability Brown actually invented the lake. A gardener invented the lake. Mm. He's also yeah. seen by the French as one of the world's great um, um, vandals. Oh, because he destroyed, he destroyed uh, for every French every, style gardens yeah, all over England. Yeah, because uh, for every garden he made, he destroyed two or three. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and villages and other things at the same oh, yeah, time. But, yeah. uh, but yes, if you talk to the French, they they think he was an absolute disaster because all of the formal French gardens all over England, virtually all of them disappeared uh, with this new sort of naturalistic landscape style. Oh. And so the French hate Capability Brown with a passion. It's more than that. It's the, the Capability Brown began work at Stowe. Mm. Now I cannot remember who was the gentleman who made Stowe, but the actual owner of Stowe was someone who in his early days fought the French, mm. loathed the French, <laughs> particularly loathed the Notre and the yeah. Sigh, yeah. and deliberately made Stowe as a, as a in protest against the French approach to landscape. See, we're never political in our gardening <laughs> like we should be, are we? You know, once upon a time, you know, a garden was a political statement. Now, yeah. now it's just a pretty place to sit, apparently. Uh, yeah. No, but, Stowe, yeah. Stowe, if you go to Stowe, I mean, it's a school now, but you can walk around the gardens. Mm. It's one of the great gardens of the world. Uh, and it's just full of pungent political comments oh, about yes. what's right and what's wrong. <laughs> and what was particularly was wrong was the French. That little argument has been going on for quite some time and probably will keep doing Absolutely. so. <laughs> All right, we've got a caller All in. All right, let's go to Bernie and Langwarren. Good morning, Bernie. Good morning and thank you for your show. That's a pleasure. Um, so, uh, I think you answered this question, which I missed a couple of weeks ago. Salvia. Mm-hmm. Now, pruning... And when to take cuttings? <laughs> Salvia is a vast genus. There are literally thousands of them, and they come from all over the world. So there isn't a one-size-fits-all with salvias. Most salvias strike easily from cuttings any time during the warmer months of the year. Uh, so I would just take cuttings whenever I felt like it, and generally you'll strike them. Um, but... It depends on the salvias. You know, there's there's shrubby salvias. Uh, there are herbaceous perennial salvias. Uh, uh, some are better actually divided than grown from cuttings. Certain varieties seem to be better that way. Um, it does fall down on which salvias you're actually growing to a large extent. And they're just... There's so many of them, but the majority of them strike easily from cuttings. Yeah, just give them a go. I'd say. Yeah, I, I just pop them in. I wouldn't put cuttings in of the herbaceous ones uh, late in the season because, you know, you need to get a good root system and some low buds forming on them to keep them going. So anything yeah. that you'd normally cut down in the winter, I probably wouldn't take late autumn winter cuttings. Um, but if the plants are in vigorous growth, you can probably take cuttings. Yeah. I mean, yeah. we... Uh, they've, 
They grow for cuttings so easily, mm. but the herbaceous ones, yeah, so they, they generally grow from a crown and, and uh, pulling the crown apart in the spring would be the go. Yeah, that, that's the best for those. So you've really got to understand what salvia you're working with uh, to understand its management and its propagating. Uh, but none of them are hard. I mean, uh, either dividing them or growing them from cuttings is the main way you grow them. Some salvias actually grow from seed quite well too. It's another possible way of raising them, although there's always the chance of some genetic variation and some hybridity coming in when you do that uh, but that's how you get a new hybrid uh, is raising things from seed um, but yeah if you take cuttings that have got at least two nodes on them uh, leave the top leaves put them into some sharp sand or some perlite or something like that put a jar over them and keep them out of the direct sun uh, if they've been kept moist they'll be struck in a couple of weeks do you know what sort you've got burning it's a red flowering one i'm looking at it at the moment it's probably Oh, 65 centimetres high. So not a particularly high one. Is it a sort of a shrubby one? Is yeah, it sort of yeah, rather woody? They it's had poss- them at um, Wilson Botanical Park in yeah. front of the office there. Yeah, it could be one of the Grigii types, the, the Mexican shrubby salvias, which strike quite easily from cuttings, and you just have to trim them back every so often if they get a bit scruffy looking. Uh, but they're actually quite a woody salvia, so they're, they're quite easy from cuttings. Oh, I'm very pleased with this one anyway, but... Funny thing is, I bought two, and one is about uh, four metres from the one that's doing well, and it just cut it. Yeah, oh, that, look, that can happen, happens. especially as young plants. If, if it doesn't get quite enough water to settle it in or something like that, it can be something quite minor that you may not realise has happened um, until the plant gets adjusted to your soil and, and what have you and gets its roots out into your own soil. They're always at risk at that point in time. Or even something that happened before you purchased Well, that it, can happen too. You can occasionally have a plant that's had something nasty happen to it that you're not aware of yeah. uh, and quite potentially the nurseryman wasn't either. Mm-hmm. Um, and the plant is actually green but it may be on its way out because it's had some sort of nasty shock. So, um, so it, look, it happens. I mean, I have things just carcass in my garden sometimes too and you can't sort of figure out why exactly it's and I get into trouble because I'm supposed to know uh, so you know but sometimes things just die um, and I just take it as a uh, an idea that I've now got a gap <laughs> so I can plant something else Start startling touch of modesty Stephen I'm surprised <laughs> would you, would you um, cut it back now uh, if it's one of the shrubby salvias, I'd probably leave it till a late winter because uh, if you oh, cut it back winter, now, yeah. uh, well, you haven't got a lot of growing time left in the season, although God knows with this autumn what is going to happen. Uh, but I would tend to, with any of the shrubby salvias, I'd clean them up in the late winter, early spring so that they'll then shoot away madly fairly quickly so they'll replace themselves and they'll start coming into bloom very fast. Okay, thank you. And also, clivia. Now, I've got some which I've tried to protect from the sun with... Um shade cloth yeah and they have really got really hurt yeah um when can i move them have you got time this afternoon (laughs) um i mean they're one of those plants you can you can shift them at virtually any time of the year um it's probably better to do it during the colder months um but you're certainly going to have to shift them because if they're if they're getting burnt by the sun well unless you've got a tree that's just about to start shading them now then they'll go through the same processes again next summer yeah. So you'll need to shift them. And you could easily dig them up today, shove them in their new home in a, in a shady spot, water them in well, uh, and they may not even realise you've done it. <laughs> Other than to go, oh, wow, we're in the shade suddenly, so they won't go all burnt and, and yellow in the summer again. Okay. 
Now, this this might be a difficult one. You you will know, being a knowledgeable person. <laughs> oh, thank you for that. It's a plant called P.T. Lotus. P.T. Lotus. Now, I bought two. Tilotus. Actually, I was given yes, one. Yes, oh, uh, the yeah. The yes. Australian plant. Yeah, you don't have to pronounce the P. You got oh, okay. you got me so going there for a second. Yeah, it's it's got little sort of fluffy pink flower heads on it. That's right, yeah. yeah. It's about 30 centimetres tall. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, again, I've got two. One looks pretty sick. The other one seems to be doing all right. Mm-hmm. It says moderate watering. I don't know quite what that means. <laughs> yes, it's a very strange term, isn't it? Um, look, the, sol- the tolotuses grow in sandy soils in Western Australia. Um, so they're obviously comparatively drought tolerant and they do need good drainage. Uh, but as a young plant, they need well watering for the first summer or so to get them going. Uh, okay. And again, it, it's a matter of settling them in and they need a good open sunny aspect. And I have to say, I don't find them overly long lived here. So ah, they're pretty okay. for a year or two, and then they, for some reason or another, seem to start going off, I reckon. And so they're one of those things you plant and consider as a temporary attractive thing in the garden. Don't assume it's going to be there in years to come because it's just the nature okay. of the beast. Yeah, well, one that's doing well, it gets slight shade from the sun. Mm. The other one was in the very bright morning sun, and that's the one that looked really sick. Yeah, it, it's more a matter of having it settled in because they should cope with the sun quite well. Okay, well, thanks very much for your help. I appreciate it. It's a pleasure. Good on you. Thanks, Bernie. Thank you. Bye-bye. Yes, you get carried away when you see those things in flower because they're so cute. Oh, you know, they're like a pet. You want yeah. to pat them. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> uh, they don't do well for me, I have to say. It's a bit cold yeah, and, and miserable. Yeah, and it's tricky with that um, whole watering regime, what it says on the label, because, uh, I mean, it really, it's when the plant's established that you move to moderate watering, yeah. isn't it? Like, all, all plants need established watering. So yeah, so, wanna, yeah, they yeah. need to get, get their roots moving. Yeah, yeah, for sure. All right, let's go to Jill in Black Rock. Good morning, Jill. Oh, good morning, everybody. I, I need some advice about the impact of synthetic turf. The, my local primary school, the Black Rock Primary School, is hoping to upgrade the school over with synthetic turf instead of natural glass. Mm-hmm. And it's surrounded by some lovely old tea trees in, you know, at our typical sandy soil. Yeah. But firstly, I don't think that it's in the best interest of the school children to change such a large area to synthetic turf. But... But I'm worried about the chemicals that synthetic turf will affect the natural vegetation on the perimeter because there's crumbed rubber in the synthetic turf. It's mm. an infill which they use, which I have read can leach small quantities of zinc. And I think there's also a fire retardant in the, in the turf mm. as well. So yeah. who knows what else? I have to say I'm not fond of it. Uh, <laughs> from an aesthetic point of view as well as from a practical point of view, I really don't like synthetic turf. Right. Um, and, I mean, it must have a huge carbon footprint uh, in the manufacturing of it. Um, uh, and I'd like to see children playing in the dirt. Exactly. Um, I just don't think it's a good idea. I don't know that it's going to have any huge impact environmentally around the perimeters. I, I, I think it's comparatively safe. But, look, anything that's made out of petrochemicals, you've got to think twice about, surely. Yeah. Just leaves the dirty, great, sterile blot on the landscape, uh, I feel. Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a, uh, look, I, but, I, I, but I, I'd be a little bit surprised if there's leakage of chemicals and damaging other plants around. I mean, they've been working on this now to eliminate those sort of problems. But 
but uh, heaven knows. But uh, it's just the the principle of synthetic yeah. turf is it's not great. Yeah, it's not, is it? not, yeah. So and not I don't children. know. I, I don't know what they're using, but I've seen kids with really interesting carpet burns when yeah. they when they go yeah, base hot, up on 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 that sort of material. And on a hot day, it just heats up so much, and it's and it can trap children too. They they think it is grass and. Uh, run around bare feet, and it's it's. Uh, <laughs> but it might as well be concrete or, yeah. or bitumen. Yeah, yeah, because it will. It will heat up something shocking. Uh, I just I just don't like it for, on principle. Uh, I just don't think it's an appropriate material. Uh, I know people use it in difficult areas where they want a lawn-like look, um, in heavy shade and things like that. Sometimes uh, I always try and look for the plant-based alternative where mm. possible. What what's their argument for for using it, Jill? Well, I think what they're trying to do is to use, and it's quite sensible, to use the oval after school hours so that other local sporting groups, and we have a lack of uh, facilities for local sporting groups, both the netball courts and their gym and this oval as well could be used by the, the football club, that sort of thing. And it means that they can get the maximum use. They can... If they use natural turf, they argue that they can't get the same hours of use, and I think they're probably right. With synthetic mm. turf, they can then have the oval being used from 5 until 10 o'clock in each evening in the week days, and then on Saturdays and Sundays, which is not good for the local residents in the sense that it's yes, narrow it's, streets yeah. and traffic jams. Yeah, it's and going to give a lot thing, more... But, but it gives them a lot more income. And so I think they're trying to maximise the income rather than coming up with a solution that they can maintain the oval to get reasonable use and probably rent it out so that local sporting clubs can get some use but not perhaps not maximum use. It's becoming a political sort of community. It needs a discussion with the community to what figure makes, out. What makes it worse is that the, um, the Black Rock, oh no, sorry not, the Royal Melbourne Golf Course is an, a neighbour to this school and they have just recently very generously offered to completely install a new turf oval before the beginning of the next school year in 2018. <laughs> yeah. um, but they've still got to maintain it and water it and do all those sorts of things. But um, so they're anyway, getting a free a oval, oval I think I'd be going that way anyway. I mean, you've just got to start looking at the practicalities long term. I mean, the, what happens when that stuff starts to break down? What do you do with well, you the... You have to replace it and yeah. put it in landfill, don't you? Yeah, exactly. You know, I mean, there's there's no easy sort of technique of recycling it and reusing it again. Yeah. Um, it's just environmentally not a good pro- process, I don't think. And I would have thought, too, it would affect the microclimate. Just Oh, it'll kill oh, the ground, up. Yeah, it? It, it just... It, it just it turns the whole area sterile. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I also wonder, Jill, if anyone's researched whether the um, teams who are supposedly going to be hiring the grounds, whether they actually want to play on fake turf. That's yeah. a good question. Yeah, I hadn't so, thought of that. Yeah, I don't think yeah. I'd want to fall over playing football on fake turf, yeah. I have yeah. to say. What I don't know is what's the maintenance with synthetic turf? What's required to actually keep it so that it's usable by these teams on such a high you know, I know one thing, things like dog poo and things need to be cleaned up off it fairly regularly because uh, it won't go Doesn't through. Down, yeah. you know, yeah. So any sort of extraneous material on the top has to be cleaned up every so often and I would assume that would also 
also apply to leaf litter dropping down onto the onto the fake grass and and you know any other sort of organic material that's falling down and around it would need to be cleaned up periodically. Um, but that I don't know what be. other maintenance is required with it, and mm. I don't know what its life is likely to be. Well, it's one of the odd things to watch. Um, um, hockey games, field hockey games mm. on the television in places like Perth, uh, very hot and dry in the summer, and they're running around a fake turf which has been watered. Otherwise, it's it's just too dangerous, <laughs> it's unplayable, and so everyone's running in a shower of water coming mm. up from mm. their feet. And and uh, this is just what happens nowadays. Uh, it's all. Oh, I used to enjoy hockey. <laughs> Maybe play it on proper grass. Good yes. grief. <laughs> but I also wonder, too, because it's not just one big piece of material. They've got to join it, haven't they, as they line it? So do you get weeds coming up between the joins at all? Or? Look, I'm quite sure that side of it is not a problem. No, okay. Yeah, and I, I think it's just really the environmental argument which needs to be gone into a bit. Well, that's very helpful. Thank you, everybody. Good on you, Jill. Thanks a lot. Bye. Bye. All right, let's go straight to Laura in North Melbourne. Good morning, Laura. Good morning. Um, I've got a, I think it's hydrangea simaniae, a climbing evergreen. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, it's been here for a long time and it's now decided it owns the place and it's going <laughs> to take over. So I was glad to hear Stephen saying you need to cut things and get rid of them. Yeah, you, look, hydrangea simani I can get quite large. I've got one growing on a wall in our rental house, which is in part of our garden. Yes. Uh, and so if you happen to have nothing to do this afternoon, you can come up to Macedon because it's open. Uh, and the simani would be covering a wall, well, normal house height, brick yes. wall, uh, and it's the whole face of the wall on that side of the house, so it would be... I don't know, 30 or 40 feet long, I suppose, yeah, in the old measurement. Well, and and the Simanii's covered the whole wall, and I just have to cut it away from the windows and, and cut it off at the ends if it goes too far. The issue you do have with that hydrangea, though, if you want it to flower, you can't cut all the stems that hang off the wall. It has off. flowered. Yeah, well, those stem, the stems that flower are the mm. ones that stick off the wall. And if you keep cutting them back and don't allow any stems to come out off the wall, it won't flower. Well, I'm not very impressed with the flower. <laughs> I've really left it because the um, the brick wall runs east-west and there's nothing on the other side and it gets very hot yeah. and it's only a small courtyard garden. Mm-hmm. And the reason for planting it was to try and cool the place down a bit. And I'm assuming that has helped a bit? It has helped, yeah. but I now think it has to go. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't it funny because people whinge because they can't grow something and then they whinge because they can. Oh, I know. Well, it must have been there since, oh, the early 2000s. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so I it's think, really got its roots down and it's very happy now. And it's sending bits out everywhere and I think, no, you are too big for this area. <laughs> now, I think I heard you talking about another climbing hydrangea with a small leaf. Yes, there there is a small... Evergreen? No, and that's there, ah. therein is the problem. The, yes. the smaller leafed ones tend to be the deciduous ones. The right. evergreen climbing hydrangeas and their relatives all tend to have comparatively large leaves. Right. Um, and even the small leafed ones can be fairly vigorous when they get going. Yes. So, But most of them take a year or two to settle in and realise that they're climbers, and then once they get hold of wherever they're growing, then off they go. Um, so they all have a tendency to be fairly vigorous once they get going and if they're happy. What can I put on that wall? Not much. Um, <laughs> I mean, if does it need to be evergreen? 
because, I mean, in the summer it would keep the heat down a bit, yeah. but in the winter it's not actually that necessary. Well, I suppose not. Mm. But it's a very small courtyard and yeah. it would be nice to have green instead of a brick wall looking at me. Yeah, all right. Well, that's fair enough. Um, it does limit you surprisingly because there's very few self-clinging climbers to mm. start with. So you've got the climbing hydrangea group, most of which are deciduous uh, and would all be of similar vigour once they got going. Uh, you've got... Well, we daren't talk about the climbing fig probably because no. we've, just, yeah, we've just had a nice, long, interesting talk about that one anyway. Uh, and that can be a bit of a monster when it gets going and still mm. needs quite a lot of management, uh, as does Boston Ivy, Virginia Creepers uh, and all those types of things. Um, the only climber I can think of that would be of a lighter structure and, and yet still self-clinging, there is a climber out there that's being sold erroneously as Parthenocissus sicamensis. They're selling it as evergreen um, Virginia creeper or something, or evergreen Boston ivy. It's not actually a Parthenocissus at all, but that's the plant you'll probably, that's the name you'll probably buy it under, is Parthenocissus Mm. sicamensis. And it has quite pretty small leaves that are divided into about seven leaflets. It's a very gentle, light climber. It's easy to peel off if it gets too big. Um, it doesn't grow rampantly, but it will get up to a reasonable size given a, a bit of time. Um, and it's actually Tetrastigma species obtecta. Uh, but you'll buy it as Parthenocissus sicamensis in everywhere but my nursery because um, it's got round in the trade under that name. Uh, and I don't think it's ever going to be known as anything else, even though it's not the right name. Um, so um, uh, it's a nice little light, airy climber. Um, and a similar looking plant, there's a native climber called um, Cissus, Cissus striatus, um, which is self clinging, stays fairly neat, and uh, it could work, but you've got to find them. Ah, uh, right. Cissus who? Cissus striata. So it's C I S U S striata, I think is S T R I A T A, I think. So you might like to look out for that. It, it will cling to brickwork or timber work. Uh, but all of the self-clingers will need to be restrained around the outsides because yes. they'll just keep going out wherever yes. there's space to go. Well, I, I don't mind that quite as much as coming into, uh, into the garden. Mm which the other one is doing. Yeah, and the hydrangea will always send out shoots into the garden, so you would need to keep it trimmed back. Uh, I mean, it can be done, and it depends. I mean, if you've got a very small courtyard garden, maybe you have more time to manage a plant like that than I have in a larger garden. (laughs) Uh, Probably. uh, Yeah, and so, you know, a low-maintenance garden always looks like one. Um, So, you know, a little bit of management of the plant. I mean, Mm. probably twice a year you'd need to prune it back quite hard. Which, you know, I don't see that as being particularly labour-intensive. And even if you have to get somebody in to give you a hand with it. Because the the hydrangea is there and it is doing the job. If you take Mm. it all down and get rid of it, which is going to be a huge job anyway, uh, consider the... Not a very big area. Yeah, but... You know, think yes, about how I often know, it takes to prune it and then how much effort's going to be in removing it. Yes. Um, there is a sort of sim- uh, you know, there's economies of scale. Yeah, go and have a good talk to it. Yeah, go and talk to it with a pair of secretaires. And you might be surprised <laughs> if, you, if you keep on top of it uh, and you do it regularly. Mm. It might even be a matter of, you know, every time you go out in the garden with a pair of secretaires, snip a couple bits off mm. so that you don't have to make it a big job at any given time. Because the one thing that worries me is that if you do remove it and plant something else, you're going to have at least a two, three, maybe four-year wait before you get something that's going to replace it. Yes. 
So, you know, you've got to balance things. Uh, well, I'll have another think about that. Now, I have a question about cyclamen or cyclamen, as yeah. you call them. Mm-hmm. Many years ago, I bought one from you, mm-hmm. which had a plain dark green leaf, but it was a almost looked like suede. Yeah, it wasn't a smooth leaf like most of yeah. them. It'll probably be one of the forms of cyclamen graecum, the Grecian cyclamen. Ah, now uh, how, how can I get it then? Drive up and see me at my garden this afternoon, and I've got plants drive. for sale at the at the garden, and I also have plants for sale at the nursery. Right. But I don't know anybody else who's selling cyclamen graecum at the moment, as far as I know. Well, it's now, virtually unavailable. You may remember that somebody from. Macedon bought some uh, graecum for Gary, which came on to Laura a couple of years ago. Vaguely. Mm. Well, those ones have the smooth leaf. How do I get one from you with a velvety leaf? You have to come and select one. Oh, dear. I yeah. can't drive. Well, you need to find good friends who can. <laughs> who want to visit, yes. yes. Okay. Yeah, so you'd need to come up and, and look through the stock and find the one that you like the look of the leaf yes. off. Yes. Mm. And you have it all the time. But you need to get it when it's in leaf, so you need I to do it from, from now through to the end of winter. Mm. All right, Laura, well, we're going to okay. have to let you thank go. Thank you. All right, thank you so much for that. Okay. Talk to you later. Bye. Bye-bye. Now, another um, another open day, so to speak, that's on this morning is the Herb and Chili Festival. And we are on the phone with uh, Clive Larkman from the Herb and Chili Festival. Good morning, Clive. Good morning. How are you today? Good. How's it all going up there? Oh, it's great. Yeah, everyone's all coming alive. The people are moving. It's just get that pre-festival vibe going. Yeah, so tell us what's happening. Well, as, we've got about 90 storeholders selling... Food and drink and ice cream and desserts from all over the world. Mostly with a chilli flavour, but a lot without chilli, just herbs flavours. We've got three, four stages running all day. We've got, as you need in the background, live music. We've got dancing. We've got... One, two, three, four. Oh, there we go. Chilli co- competition. Captain Chilli, he and hottest chilli. Um, no, I, I was there yesterday. I have to say, boy, oh, boy, do people take their chilli seriously. Oh, God, yes. These are real, real <laughs> aficionados here. Fantastic. Now, um, we're at 125 Quail Road in Wandon, so that's off yes. the Warburton Highway. Yes. And w- what time and how much, Clive? 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Yeah. $24 for adults, $18 for concession and 65 for families. Fantastic. And I know that you've got a whole lot of free goodies going on for the kids. Yep. Oh, we've got jumping castles. We've got three... A huge 16 metre by 14 metre fire truck jumping castle. We've got a brand new um, paintball for kids where you shoot targets, not each other. Oh, come on now. Take all the fun out of it. <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> and face painting and pony rides and animal farm. It, look, you bring the family down here, it's cheaper than babysitting. And you spend the whole day eating the most amazing foods, drinking the most fantastic drinks of beer and wine and sugarcane juice, and just have a really, really good day. Fantastic. All right, Clive. Well, I hope it goes really well for you. So that's the Herb and Chili Festival at 125 Quail Road in Wandon. And, um, yeah, hope you have a super-duper day. We will do. And thanks, guys. Talk to you soon. Take okay, care. Okay, thanks, Clive. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye.
Now, Jeremy, I know you've got a couple of things up your sleeve that you wanted to mention. Yeah, a couple of things. I must yep. say the Yarra Valley is looking superb at the oh, moment, so do get up there and, and spend an hour or two driving around and just enjoying it oh, and, sure. and drop into the Chili Festival. Now, uh, uh, next, uh, no, Saturday the 1st of April, uh, diggers have a garlic workshop at Cloud Hill with Penny Woodward, the garlic guru. Um, and um, so there's two workshops actually, 10.30 in the morning and again at 1 o'clock in the afternoon and it's just uh, anyone interested in, in uh, seriously interested in garlic and, and the, the huge variety that is available and um, give diggers a hoy and uh, they'll let you know just what positions so what um, workshops still have spaces um, and also we're doing something uh, in um, two weeks' time on the, the um, April the 1st, so the, that same weekend actually, April the 1st, April the 2nd, with um, Ian Maher, who's, uh, this is, uh, Ian Maher is a, uh, a sculptor who carves stone, but carves text into mm. stone. His, his he, work is beautiful. Oh, just an extraordinary character and just fabulous to talk to. He's actually installing a piece into one of the one part of Cloud Hill on the Friday, the Friday the 31st, but he's, he'll be um, with us over the weekend and um, uh, he'll be working on a piece and anyone interested in carving, uh, letter cutting it's known technically as, but carving text into, into slate or sandstone, he runs workshops. He's he's by far Australia's foremost exponent of this particular garden craft, which I might add goes back thousands of years. It's all handwork. It's just extraordinary. And and uh, as I was saying, he is just the, the most interesting person to chat with. And you see him chipping away, and he chats the whole time as he's working. He's been doing it for he doesn't a go, long, long time. Does he whilst he's not Well, I, I've, I've watched him working on a piece over several days, and it, the, 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 turned a piece of stone worth $200 into a piece of stone worth $2,000. Mm. And he's finishing it off, and he's still chatting away to someone else. He's finishing off the last few minutes. Uh, I, I have my heart in my mouth. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'm afraid I'd be much the same. Yeah, so he'll be there uh, that weekend, the first yeah. weekend of April. Yeah, sounds great. Now, mm. Stephen, give your address again oh, slowly. Yeah. Yes, if anybody wants to come up to the garden today, and I hope they will, uh, it is 8 Centenary Avenue, Macedon, uh, and you come in off Marshall Avenue, which comes off Mount Macedon Road, so it's easy enough to find. And I've got lots of the open garden Victoria green signs out from the highway all the way up to lead you into Marshall Avenue. You park in Marshall Avenue, and it's just two houses in. um, And, yeah, come and visit us and, and... have a gosh, gosh, if your garden's anything like uh, Cloud Hill at the moment, I'm sure. Uh, I'm sure in terms of uh, that, so many plants which normally would have finished flowering weeks mm-hmm. ago are, are just coming into flower now. Asters, which normally uh, finish flowering in February, are just looking stunning in Cloud Hill right yeah, now. Yes. Unfortunately, oh, I don't know what it's like up in the hills, but I was hoping for a little bit of early autumn colour, but it hasn't ah, quite happened. No, no. A couple of things <laughs> look like they're on the verge of, and that's about it. But it's about foliages and textures and forms and shapes and all that sort of stuff, and I make no apologies for whether the garden's got masses of flowers or otherwise, because there's always something interesting to look at and that's yeah. what a garden should be. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Now, we have got time for one more caller. So, Catherine uh, from Melbourne, good morning. You there, Catherine? Catherine? No, it looks like Catherine might have gone. So, let's try Liz in Collingwood. You there, Liz? Oh, hello. Hi. Be very quick call. Read the artificial turf. 
this, uh, as well as the um, environmental damage and to insect life, etc., etc., um, have a Google. There are cases in America where they're being sued for cancer for sports people who've played on them. I don't know if it's true or yes, not. You can only believe things in Google with a uh, pinch of salt sometimes. But oh, Yes, but uh, these are legal cases that yeah. have been taken. Yeah, well, it's certainly That's worthwhile looking comment, into. And have a lovely day at your garden, Stephen. Oh, I'm sure we will. <laughs> bye-bye. All right, Good bye-bye. Evening. Thanks, Liz. Yeah, so um, your garden from 10. <laughs> I won't be there quite at 10, but the no. garden will be open at 10. Uh, Craig will have himself all organised up there and, and our gate sitters will be out there prepared to take your money and there'll be cold drinks and coffee ready to be made and all that sort of stuff. So I'll be there just after 10 because I've got to go via Gisborne, pick up some bread and things as I go through so that our gate sitters have lunch. Um, but, uh, yeah, we should have a lovely day up there. It's going to be a very fine day. Um, my gardens, Most of my garden is lovely and shady, so it'll be a nice place to be on a warm day anyway. How many uh, people do you usually get through? Well, we're not sure how this one's going to go because it's our first opening for the new scheme, so it's it's sort of a, a whole new thing. Mm. Um, but numbers have been hugely various depending on the time of the year. I mean, my, my record is a little over a thousand for a weekend, which is a lot of people in yeah. a, a garden the size of mine. Uh, but on general, you know, we we're happy if we get sort of the four five hundred through. Um, I think we're well on course to do that. We didn't do a proper count last night, but I've got a funny feeling we. Sort of did about 260, 270 yesterday. Uh, hopefully we'll do a few more than that today. So we should be up around the five or 600 people, I think, through yep. the garden, which is nice. I mean, if, if we get the 1,000 through the garden thing, it actually starts to get to a point where you're starting to feel a bit nervous about it being too crowded. Mm. And, yes. uh, you know, if you've got a great big garden like Cloud Hill, they can disappear into the garden a little bit. <laughs> get lost in the forest. Yeah, sort of spreads them out a bit. But if it's in a you know comparatively restrained space like ours is, uh, large numbers... Actually, I think have a detrimental effect on the on the enjoyment of the garden in a way. So it's like going to see the Mona Lisa. You've got to sort of push through the crowds and look over somebody's head to actually see it in the distance. And you think, well, you know, why bother? Why bother? Yes, I, I don't want my borders to be the same sort of uh, problem. Although they'll never quite get up to the Mona Lisa standard. But you know. I, I, was, I, was, I was stretching my imagination there for a moment. Yeah, 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 no, no, I, I wasn't trying to allude to me and Michelangelo having something in common. But uh, you know what I mean? Where there's a big crowd, sometimes it ruins the the feel for everybody yeah. that's there because there's actually too many people. Yeah. But yesterday was a lovely constant stream of people through it. Never felt frenetic. Yeah. But there was always people in the garden, which yeah. was lovely. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, we have reached that time once again and that we is have. all for now. So thank you very much to Liz for womaning the phones. Thank you to Stephen and Jeremy for sharing your knowledge. And thanks to you, the listeners, for tuning into the 3CR Gardening Show. My name is A.B. Bishop, and we'll be here again at the same time next week. So until then, remember that you can never b- borrow money from a leprechaun because they're all a little short. <laughs> <laughs>